you go ahead and open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 9. You know, as we've been going through the epistle to the Hebrews, the writer has made many comparisons, always showing that Jesus Christ is greater. Jesus is better. He's compared Christ to the prophets, to angels, to Joshua, to Moses, to Aaron, always pointing Jesus Christ's superiority. But he never puts down these persons or things that he compares with Christ or Christ's work. In fact, in reality, he exalts the prophets and the angels and Moses and Aaron and the Old Covenant. He doesn't compare Jesus Christ to people or to things that are insignificant or meaningless, but to things and to people that were God-ordained and faithful and purposeful. He doesn't try to build Christ up by putting down these other people. But instead, he magnifies and praises them. And as we see, the more other persons and things are magnified, Jesus Christ is more magnified. And again, we see that Jesus is greater than all else. Jesus is better. Chapters 8 and 9 we're seeing that Jesus Christ is magnified as a better high priest. And today we'll see that Jesus Christ is better in dealing with a guilty conscience. The Bible tells us that the conscience enables us to know right from wrong. I don't know about you, but I can still remember as a little kid, six, seven, maybe even five, some of the things in my life. I can remember doing things as a kid that I shouldn't be doing. And I remember particularly this can that was in our storage building. And I would go in every day and I would look at it. And I wondered what was in this can. And I remember this, the temptation every day. How could I see what was in this can? Now, a few years back, so we didn't have plastic bottles with tops that you can open. It was, it was a can. And so my curiosity got the best of me. I, I found an ice pick, and I punched a hole in this can. And immediately, I felt guilt. Is this oil, is this fluid spilled out? It, it felt kind of like whenever I would go into the cookie jar when mom had said, don't go in the cookie jar. Well, dad found out that this can was, had been punctured and he asked us, who did it? I didn't, I didn't do it. Guilt on more guilt. But in the midst of it, Dad said, who punched the hole in the transmission fluid? And I had two concurrent thoughts. What is transmission fluid? And more guilt. And more guilt. We know that with the passing of time that we're not able to dismiss a guilty conscience. Albert Speer was a technological genius, 
who was credited for keeping the factories of the Nazis going during World War II. In another era, he would have been an industrial giant. He was, one, he was the only one out of 24 men, uh, war criminals, that were tried in Nuremberg, who admitted his guilt. He spent 20 years in prison. He was interviewed about his last book on ABC's Good Morning America. And the interviewer referred to an earlier writing by Spear, and he says, you said that your guilt can never be forgiven, or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? The look of anguish on the face of, of Spear was wrenching as he responded, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleaned, it's been cleansed by serving my time. He says, I can't say that. I can't say that. I still carry the burden of the millions of people that were killed during Hitler's lifetime. I, I can't get rid of it. This new book is a part of my atoning for my sin, for clearing my conscience, if you will. The interviewer pressed the point. You really don't think that you'll be able to totally clear that guilt. The spirit shook his head. I don't think it's possible. Spirit spent 35 years accepting complete responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to not do what he had done. And he desperately, desperately sought to have that guilt removed, but to no avail. And today, whether our conscience is guilty for taking cookies when we shouldn't, or punching a hole in a can, or something much more serious. Our conscience is guilty. And until we turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness made available through the blood of Christ, we'll have no cleansing. And coming to Christ offers us a new conscience without the slightest sense of lingering guilt. Let's look again at our passage. I want to start in Hebrews Chapter 8, verse 13, one verse before 9-1, and we'll go through verse 10. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, and it was the holy place. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Some versions would say the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, 
overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have been, having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. And according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot protect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. If I may, I'm taking my jacket off. My weather yesterday said 51 or 52 for a high. I think it's gone way beyond that. As we read this section, and as you heard it read, you may be saying, what in the world does this have to do with me? We live in a very different world. We don't live in a world of tents with outer sections and intersections for worship. We live in a world of laptops and iPods and Bluetooth devices and antibiotics and scented candles and, and beautiful offices that are air-conditioned and, and lakefront homes, and I could go on. It's a very different world compared to the world described in chapters 8 and 9. And so what do you do with a message like this? You might be tempted to say, this has absolutely nothing to do with me, and dismiss it. But I want to tell you this morning that it has everything to do with you and with me. Remember, this passage is a passage describing for us how much better. How much better is Jesus as a high priest? How much better is Jesus as a high priest that can, in this case, cleanse our conscience. It's drawing a contrast between worship under the old covenant and worship under the new covenant. Worship that involved tents and tabernacles and temples and outer courts and inner courts, the sacrifice of animals, the shedding of blood, the ritual cleansing, contrasted with the blood of Jesus Christ and his ministry. I want us this morning to give attention to this. It may seem strange, maybe sometimes very strange, but I say to you this morning, if we're not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you're lost. Unless we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ on that day of judgment, we're lost forever. And so we must give attention to this because it looks at our salvation. Even though it seems foreign to us, it's very relevant. Verses 1 through 7 set up what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see. They describe the the ways that people God worshipped under the Old Covenant. Verse 1 says there was an earthly sanctuary versus a heavenly one. In verse 2, this sanctuary or tabernacle had an outer part called the holy place. 
Then the inner part, with, which was called the Holy of Holies, and there was an altar and chest and sacred relics with cherubim above. Verse 6 describes the high priest entering into the tent continually, day in, day out, offering sacrifices. And verse 7 describes the high priest entering the Holy of Holies only once a year to make atonement for the people of Israel. In other words, this strange foreign period of history, the way to God was very limited. His presence was sealed off, if you will, from the outer tent. Think about it. Even though the tabernacle was always positioned to be in the center of the nation of Israel, where they're traveling or where they set up the camp, the tabernacle was in the center. But only they never gained access to his presence. Only the priest could enter the first section, and only the high priest, once a year, entered the second section. I think about it, and I, and I still remember when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and I remember then and then times afterwards the overwhelming sense of God's presence, the Spirit of God, was so clear, so much present in my life. And yet these Old Testament saints never had that sense. God could only be approached on that day of atonement once a year, and the high priest could only go in with blood, including blood for his own sins, and sins for the intentional, unintentional sins of the people. The NIV says sins committed in ignorance. So what about the sins that someone committed willingly? What about the rebels? Let's be honest. I'm a rebel. You're a rebel. We sin. We sin willingly. But this priest offered sacrifice for unintentional sin. Was forgiveness only for the wandering sheep? You may say, what good is a religion that only forgives sins that are done in ignorance? Because we know who we are. What about the sins that one did know? Well, it's just a few or a lot. The truth is, is our sins are overwhelming, aren't they? They're overwhelming. So we're, if I were living there, if you were living there, what would we do? We know that the forgiveness was temporary until we sin again. You want a five-minute forgiveness? In verse 8, the writer starts his interpretation of this old uh, covenant period with its strange and foreign ways. And he says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. In other words, the, the ritual of this tent and the way that it stands between the worshiper and God are characteristic of this present age as he describes it. 
Notice now, again, he's not saying that this ritual is irrelevant or unimportant. He says that this tent, these furnishings, and this priestly ministry, these rituals, have directly to do with this time period, the old covenant time period. But what is this present time that he says that he has in mind? And, and what does it have to do with our present time? Let's keep reading and let him explain what time means and how the times are changing, and even as he was writing. Verses 9b and 10 says, According to this arrangement, sacrifices are offered that can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The New Living Translation says, not able to cleanse the conscience, but deals only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. There's another reference to time and movement of God in history. Let's, let's compare the reference in 9a to the reference in 10b. In 9, verse 9, he says that the outer tent with its furnishings and ministry separating the people from the Holy of Holies and the presence of God was symbolic of the present time. Then 9b and 10 says that all these external rituals that relate to food and to drink and to washings are valid only until the time of Reformation, the new order. So the question is, when does this transition take place? When does this present time end and the Reformation start? You might say, well, this writer was living in the time period after Jesus Christ had come and had lived and had died and was resurrected. Why does he say that he was living in this present time versus the Reformation? We know that, that Jesus Christ's coming is the time of the change. Turn back, if you will, to the closing of chapter 8 and see the clue. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. So do you see what he sees himself? He sees himself in a transition period. Transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. The old system of relating to God through the ritual and through sacrifice and through the priest and the tabernacle is becoming obsolete. And it is vanishing. It's ready to disappear. And the new order or the Reformation, has been inaugurated in Christ Jesus and is replacing the old. And soon, probably within five or six years, the temple will be destroyed and with it the whole sacrificial system up until this day. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who were still probably worshipping in the temple some. If you lived in Jerusalem, you have probably gone to the temple almost every day of your life. So they continued. They worshipped Jesus, but they would go to the temple. That's part of the reason why the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter. Some of the Jewish Christians, if you remember, were being persecuted by other Jewish people. And some had 
apostatized. They had left. Some were finding it hard to move forward. He's writing to instruct them. He's writing to encourage them to stick with it. The present time hasn't quite vanished yet. In theory it has. Christ has come. He's resurrected. There's no need for them to go to the temple since Jesus had died and had risen. But the author here is drawing a contrast in time. There's this present age, which is actually the Old Covenant, with its rituals and sacrifices and with the tabernacles and the tents and the high priest and the blood of the animals and the food and the drink and the, all those rituals. And he wants these believers to know and understand that that all has passed. It's is over. Jesus Christ has come. It's a new period. It's a new covenant. The way to think about this time period is to to, not to say it's not relevant, but to say that that old time period, under God's sovereign um, design, everything pointed toward Jesus. Everything pointed toward Christ. That old period sheds light on the meaning of the new one. And so you and I live in this new period, the Reformation, as he called it. It's important. It's relevant to us, even though we live in a computerized world, a jet speed age with solutions that come from the secular world, how can we, with stained consciousness, draw near to God? How can we draw near to God? It's relevant because of one thing, in the midst of our modern life, with scientific progress, with psychological therapies, with medical discoveries, none of these can take care of a seared conscience. It's all about how people with stained consciousness can draw near to God. Isn't it remarkable that when you spend an evening isolated in front of your computer, whether you're playing video games, whether you're addicted to work, or whether you're addicted to pornography, the issue is not the wonders of technology or science. The issue is how can I come to God when I feel so dirty? How can I come to my wife and children with transparent love when my conscience is defiled? And if you're not a computer whiz, it's okay. It's easy to allow TV soaps or romance novels or stock market pages or spirit-numbing music to be there instead of Christ. Isn't it remarkable, though? <laughs> the basic problems in life don't change. They never change. The circumstances change, but basic problems don't. We're humans. <laughs> we have consciences that witness our guilt, condemning us. We know that what keeps us away from God is not dirty hands <laughs> or soil clothes, or distance from an altar or my high priest, what keeps us from God 
is real sin. Real sin echoing a condemning conscience. You see, God has solved that problem for us. Now, they're in a new period, away from that foreign way of, of, of worship, we're in a new period. And God has done something in history that is so different. That old period, that old covenant, only pointed to the solution. It pointed toward Jesus Christ. The old covenant didn't have a solution. Let's look at verses 11 through 14 and watch for the differences between the old present time or the old covenant and the time of reformation or the new covenant. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, from dead works to a living, to serve a living God. We're first here, we see a contrast of the blood. The blood of the goats and the bulls, the blood of the red heifer, contrasted with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's the blood of the animals that was offered over and over and over, day after day after day after day, to no avail. And then there's the blood of Jesus Christ that's offered once, once for all, never to be repeated again. The blood of the animals was ineffective because it had to be repeated over and over. And verse 9 says that the gifts and the sacrifices that the priests offer were not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. And that, in contrast with the blood of Jesus Christ that was offered once for all, once for all, securing an eternal redemption. We're talking about what some older theologians used to call blood theology. Not a lot of people these days like blood theology. Those of you who've been around for a while remember Bishop Shelby he was Anglican, Episcopal, high up. This is his thought about blood theology, the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, I choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity that required the sacrifice of his son. I choose to loathe such a deity, he says. But in Christ we glory in it. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, how about this? There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
You see, the blood of Jesus Christ sets us free from a guilty conscience. The contrast here between the blood of the animals and the blood of Jesus. You may say, well, what did the blood of the animals signify? It signified that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. God says that, well, rather, it signifies that the curse of the covenant, what it is, and God says in Leviticus 26, he says, if you will not listen to me, if you spurn my, my statues, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease. Ezekiel 18 says that the soul that sins dies. The soul that sins dies. So, in order for atonement to be made, in order for sinners to be reconciled to God, in order for sinners to be redeemed and set free from the bondage to sin, a price has to be paid. And that price is the death of a sacrificial victim. Mark Dever says it so well. He says, but these animals could not atone for sin. They were wholly incapable of doing that despite being carefully chosen. Remember, they had to be perfect without any kind of uh, of, uh, of, of imperfection. They were unable to forgive sins. And God sends his own son, of which these were just types and foreshadowing. He sent his son into this world to die for us, to shed his blood for us, to be our substitute, to be our sin bearer, to take upon himself our sins, to receive the judgment that our sins deserved, that he was made sin for us who knew no sin that he, that we rather, might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him. It's powerful. You see, there's a contrast here between the old and the new covenant, the present age and the age of reformation. There's a contrast between the blood of the animals and the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. There's a contrast between the old and the new. But there's another contrast, a contrast about the conscience. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to us is that that very repetition over and over of these sacrifices under the old covenant revealed that they could never cleanse the conscience. All they could do was cleanse the external. In verse 13, he makes a reference to the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer. It's a ritual that you'll find in Numbers 19. To illustrate, I want to tell you a story. I want you to, to imagine that you lived in Nazareth under the Old Covenant. Not in Jerusalem, but Nazareth. And that would be a two- or three-day journey. Families, including grandparents and parents and children, would be obligated at times to go to Jerusalem, maybe like on the Day of Atonement. You'd all go together 
Sometimes you'd go in the cart if you had people who were older. And so consider yourself going, you're taking your spouse and your parents and Aunt Maud and, and the kids. And as you're traveling along in the cart, Aunt Maud, who happened to be 98, um, is warm, and, and she's kind of nodding off and on, and she's leaning against you, and after a while you realize that Aunt Maud is quiet. And you realize Aunt Maud died, and Aunt Maud was leaning against you. Aunt Maud died in the cart. Now what? Well, there's a funeral, but you, you, you can't go to the temple because you're originally unclean. You've touched someone dead. The price for this was you had to go. A red heifer was ritually killed outside the camp. The priest would dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it in the direction of the tabernacle, and then it was burned, and the ashes were put in water, and the water containing these ashes was used for purification until you touched another dead person. And then you had to start back over. And you know, in that time period, you were going to be touching dead people. So do you understand? <laughs> There's a contrast here about conscience. All the Old Testament rituals could do nothing but sanctify externally, but couldn't cleanse the conscience. They couldn't take away the guilt. And that's our greatest problem. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what college you go to. It doesn't matter whether you won or lost, or what your income is, or what your job is. It doesn't matter. It's the same problem. We all have the same problem, a guilty conscience, until we turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And not just guilty feelings, but a guilt before the sight of God. And because we're sinners, Romans says, for all is sinned and falls short of the glory of God, there is no one righteous, no, not one. That's your problem. That's my problem. We're sinners. And you say, well, how can I find... Someone who will cleanse my conscience. How can I find someone who will set me free from my guilt? Hebrews 9.14 gives us the answer. It says, How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serving the living God? I urge you this morning, if you're here and you never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to turn to Christ this morning. Turn right now to Christ and receive the free gift that he bought at an infinite price, the gift of a perfect forgiveness, the gift of cleansing of the conscience. I urge you this morning to consider the that God considers and it looks at your inner life more or much as we do our outer life. And we should continually inventory our thought life. And before we come in 
to worship on Sunday mornings, we should take time to prepare our hearts. Well, someone has said, as we look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Covenant was like putting a Band-Aid on a heart attack. And under the New Covenant, surgery replaces the heart of stone with a tender one of flesh. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would remind us to be thankful for what we have in Christ. Father, that because of faith in Christ, you cleanse our conscience. Father, we have to go back every day. Oh, Father, is anyone today who is here, who's heard the gospel, who knows it, like I did for about 20 or 25 years, and never made that decision. I pray, Father, today that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and experience that cleansing feeling, that freedom from the bondage of sin. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.